Today on Between the Lines, exploring the creative mind with psychotherapist Dennis Palumbo. Welcome, I'm Barry Kibrick. Dennis is a true Renaissance man. As a screenwriter, he wrote the beloved film, My Favorite Year. As a talented author, his Daniel Rinaldi mysteries are not only bestsellers, but filled with wisdom and insight. And as a therapist, his advice to some of the best imaginative minds in Hollywood is unparalleled. With his columns, Hollywood on the Couch, featured online in Psychology Today, he enlightens how the creative mind works and what you can do to hone your own creativity. I'm a writer today because I was a reader when I was 11 years old. And it was... You You do not need to prove your state of happiness to anybody. Most of these speeches were as much as a month in preparation. Characters, the heroes in this book are seekers of truth. In, in a story that, that involved a lot of corruption. You don't get a chance to really talk about what's real. And that is the first thing Dennis, this is a troika now. This is your third time on the show. Welcome back to Between the Lines. Such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Barry. It's really great to be back again. Well, we're doing something very different. The first time I had you on here was for your nonfiction book, Writing from the Inside Out, which was... Uh, amazing for the viewers. Then we had you on, and I'm going to hold it up again for the D- Daniel Rinaldi mystery. And I want to again show the latest one to everybody out there. Uh, but we're not talking about the mystery today. What we're doing is something I've not done before. We are going to talk about a series that you have on Psychology Today online yeah. called Hollywood on the Couch. And what it's about, and so the viewers know, is that it is literally your messages your your wisdom coming out from the meetings you've had coaching and helping creative people and when i read them i said wait a minute this isn't only going to help creative people this is going to help everyone because everyone has certain levels of creativity absolutely. in every job they do absolutely uh, because, you know, I've been a, a therapist in private practice for about 28 years. And prior to that, for 17 of those years, I was a Hollywood TV and screenwriter. And so my practice is primarily people in the entertainment industry. And so the column Hollywood on the Couch is a way to address the issues that creative people struggle with. But as you say, it's not limited to writers and actors and directors or musicians. Everyone, I think, can access the creative spark within themselves, and everyone struggles with the same kinds of issues, whether it's blocks or you're feeling uh, anxious or you're afraid of rejection or you procrastinate. Everyone in every field of endeavor struggles with these issues. And so what I've found over the years is that people from all walks of life seem to respond to my column. Well, you know, and the one that caught my eye was from the first column, which was a, that I read was about the creative life. And it was this words, openness to surprise. Yes. Because nowadays, if we, and whether you are, like you said, an attorney, a doctor, a teacher, whatever it is that you're an accountant, a, a sanitation worker, everything is changing constantly. So if you cannot be open to surprise, whatever creative juices you have cannot flow freely. They get dammed up, so to speak. 
That's absolutely true. And, and one of the things I've learned in my practice working with patients is that if you can develop self-trust, if you can develop the sense that who you are is okay and enough, whatever changes come along, you'll be able to course correct. In other words, you'll be open to whatever surprises you so that rather than being afraid of change or the uncertainty of the future, you believe in your core that you can step up and meet that challenge. And in fact, you'll be enhanced by the process of doing that. Well, one of the articles is called Turning Anxiety into Creativity. You actually say Use what scares you. Use what you're afraid of. Use what you are made out of to get that spark going. Don't try to stifle it. Don't try to push it away. Use it. It's to your advantage if you can do that. Absolutely. I remember having a a writer patient one time saying, if I could take all of my doubts and my fears and my insecurities and shove them out the door, then I could sit down and write. To which I responded, write about what? The reality is you have to bring all of those things back in because that's where the, you know, how people can relate to what you write. The, the human condition is filled with all of those feelings. And if you're going to create anything, whether it's a party for someone, a novel, a screenplay or a painting, you have to be aware that everything you're feeling, if you can get that into the work, no matter how negative you think it is, the more of that real feeling you can put in, the more it relates to everybody else. But you said those key words, if you can get it into your work, because that's the hardest thing to do. When you are feeling filled with anxiety, even the thought of working makes you anxious. So mm-hmm. that's the, 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 that's the trick. Not, I don't want to say trick because it's, but that's at the essence of what must be done. And I think it's probably one of the hardest things. It is. It's sort of embracing all of who you are. And if all of who you are includes anxiety, includes trepidation, includes insecurity, then what you have to do is find a way to activate all of that. Let's say you're a playwright and you're feeling frustrated and blocked I would say to you, well, what character in your play feels frustrated and blocked? And give that character all of those feelings. And I find that when patients do that, when they take what's inside of them and put it into their work, it releases something in them. It's almost like you uncork a bottle and all this great stuff comes out. Yet, and you deal with this, and that's what I want to come to next, is that when that often happens, though, you get so self-critical I, I, in fact, I, I, I use that term. It's almost the paralysis of analysis. You're so trying to think of how to get out of it, you're getting paralyzed. You say dealing with your own, acrit, own inner critic is a two-edged sword. Killing it off won't work. It isn't even desirable. But how do you separate that from blaming yourself, hating yourself, and punishing yourself? That's the key. You want a one-sentence answer for no, that I want, question? You no, can, you can spend the rest of I tell you, I deal with that so much in my own life. I don't mind lying on the couch right now, Dennis, and let you just take over for the next 55 minutes if I'm correct. But the work that you're talking about is a person's work of life. It, it's sort of like their task. All of us have the task of figuring out a way to coexist with our anxiety, our fears, 
the things that paralyze us? How do we coexist with those things without seeing them as evidence that there's something wrong with us? And I think that's the key. I mean, I've been in therapy on and off as a patient, you know, for many, many years. I'm as neurotic and insecure as I ever was. I just don't hassle myself about it anymore. And I think that freedom to accept all of who you are allows you to say, well, I'm working today on my project. Let's say I'm writing a screenplay and I'm anxious and I'm stuck and I don't know what to do next. Wow, I felt that way almost every time I've begun a screenplay. I guess that's just who I am. Now, let's keep going. You use these words and I just want to repeat them because it sums that up so beautifully. It says, don't judge having an inner judge too harshly. That's what it's really about, isn't it? So you're not going to eliminate this, but just like you said, don't hassle yourself so much about it, right? Well, see, it's important. If you didn't have an inner critic or an editorial function, let's call it, you you couldn't discern good from bad. And so the the key is to sort of make friends with it. You know, I I always look at it as your, your inner critic is probably your dancing partner for life, but you should, you know, at least lead. And I think that if we can do that, if we can develop a relationship with that part of ourselves that critiques, evaluates, uh, makes everything we do and say a referendum on our character, if we can come to terms with that person, we can live more contentedly. Oh, I, when can I make an appointment? No. <laughs> I'll leave you my card. <laughs> oh, Dennis, I, I want... There's another thing that caught me, because so much of... Uh, psychology is obviously an interpersonal venture, but there was one article that I think went almost to the macro level and I, and to outside of the self. And I, and I want to discuss that one because I found that fascinating as everything was so, and by the way, this is also so personal, but it was uh, on a different level, almost on a, an, an ethereal level. And that was the war between faith and doubt. It's not a war. It's a balancing act. That's right. If you think about opposites, we tend to always want faith. And the reality is faith has no meaning without doubt, just like courage has no meaning without fear. All of the binary aspects of the human condition are necessary to make one complete gestalt, if you want to look at it that way. And so if someone says to me, for example, everything I write is wonderful, And everyone's going to buy it and I'm going to be rich and famous. Or else someone else might say, everything I write is terrible. My career is never going to go anywhere and I'm a complete flop. Both of those are magical thinking. They're two sides of the same coin. Whereas I think a more appropriate stance is sort of cautious optimism. You have enough faith to coexist with the doubt. You have enough courage to coexist with the fear. You know, in, in one of the articles, uh, because we were talking about that, the critic, the self-critic, you, you write, create now, critique later. How to balance that perspective with the creative passion. That's also the key, isn't it? Because the passion, uh, and I, I use that word a lot, and it comes up, and I've now figured it has two terms. One is a deep love. One is a deep fear yeah. and regret, okay? So it is... 
the ability to balance that without losing the zest that the passion provides. That's right. The thing when I say create now and critique later, what I mean by that is if you can be present in the here and now while you're creating, you don't fall prey to stepping back while you're writing and saying, no one's going to like this. I think that's a silly sentence or no one's going to admire this painting. In other words, what the Buddhists call the chattering monkey mind, where you begin evaluating who you are and your level of talent while you're supposedly in the moment. You know, John Bradshaw had a wonderful explanation for this. He talked about people who show slides of their summer vacation to friends. And while they're looking at the slides go, gosh, I must have had a good time (laughs) because they actually hadn't been present while they were there. And I think for people to do their most authentic creative work, they have to be present in the moment. The moment, though, is the hardest thing because, like you say, that chattering mind, we have to almost... I I, I had the original In the Moment fellow. I had Baba Ramdas on the show, Be Here Now. And I remember my first line to him is, Baba... I'm there all the time. I'm, it's hard to be here now. It is a difficult thing to be in the present. People say to me, in fact, well, I see your show. You're always in the present. Oh, no, I'm not during my show even. I'm thinking, what is the next thing I have to do? Where does it? So even though I'm present, I'm hearing and listening, the mind, the minute I just for one second stop doing what I'm doing, whoop, there it goes. Oh, but that's true for everyone. Even here, sitting here with you, I've been evaluating how I've been doing and what I said a minute ago. And did that sound like, you know, good? Did it sound bad? Did I come off pedantic? Those are the things we do. And it is human to do it. And our goal moment to moment is to stay in the moment to moment. You wrote an article also on the buddy system. And everybody needs a buddy. And I couldn't help but when I was reading it, realizing that, yes, everyone needs a buddy, but if you are all alone, you may have to be the buddy to yourself. Yeah, you may have to be. Uh, When I was talking about the buddy system, I meant it the way in scuba diving, you dive with a buddy, or when you're a child in elementary school, you have to have a buddy to cross the street. And it is wonderful if you're a creative person of any stripe to be able to have that one person you can call at one in the morning when you're going crazy and you think everything you're doing is terrible and they can reassure you. But not everybody has that. And so what they have to do in those cases is develop a relationship with themselves or, as I might say, a relationship with your creative talent that is embracing and supportive rather than adversarial. A relationship with the part of you that creates, that is friendly, that is interested, that wants the best for it. So in a sense, I see how that, if you're able to do it, that brings you back to the now because you get out of yourself, out of your monkey mind by doing that. That's right. That's a good way to do it. It's a good way to think about it. I mean, 
I, I often laugh when people say, oh, you know, my screenplay is my baby or my painting is my baby. But you wouldn't treat a baby the way you talk to yourself about this work. You know, I mean, if, if a five-year-old comes in with a painting and says, oh, mommy, mommy, look what I made. You don't say, well, I don't know if that's art. I'd keep your day job if I were you. But I have so many patients. I had a patient one time who came into my office so that she could, in front of me, tear up a short story that she had written because she hated it and herself so much. And so we, we call the work we do, oh, I'm working on my baby or this project is my baby. But we don't treat that work with love and affection and support. And we have to do it because we're the first ones to see it. We're the first ones to nurture it before it goes out into the world. I swear to you, I feel better just hearing you say that already. <laughs> no, I, I, I can see why you are so sought after because, it, it, you know, it seems so obvious, but it's it, it seems to just only sound it when you say it. it. It plays in the back of the mind, but it's hard to get it to that front. It almost like as if it stays in the lizard brain yeah. and won't come out to that frontal cortex. Yeah, well, I, I think any kind of work that involves you being authentic and at the same time kind to yourself, it's what I call simple but not easy. You have to be conscious to do it. You have to struggle against patterns of behavior, habitual ways of thinking, uh, old messages you received when you were young. It's important to look at all of those factors in terms of what self-concept you walk around with. If you don't think you're enough, then you won't feel like you're enough. As the writer John Gardner once said, if you think what you do isn't important, you're right. Uh. And so I'm a big fan of getting people to embrace their creativity as a function of who they really are. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. That makes it so endemic then to themselves, doesn't it? So that's why then they're able to to sort of, like you say, not shed the baggage because you don't want to do that, but live with it. Yeah, there is no shedding of the baggage. There's, you know, people will say to me, oh, I went on a retreat and I just got rid of so much stuff. And I always <laughs> think, well, where did it go? <laughs> I probably ended up with yeah. it. <laughs> where did it go? You know, you still look the same to me. I think this leads perfectly into the next article that I think, uh, again, especially for creative people, if they don't take this to heart, I could see them getting in a lot of trouble. And that is in praise of goofing off, daydreaming as an aid to creativity. I have had some very close people to me who feel so guilty if they're playing a video game instead of doing something. And I said, you know, you can't stay in that mode all the time. You must give yourself that. And you really hit it home. You say, not only is it 
an aid to creativity, but it may be the key to creativity. The way you explain it and express mm-hmm. it, you really want us to feel comfortable with being in that mode of quote unquote goofing off. Because if you're creative, nothing's really goofing off anyway. Everything is, like you said, is an, you're enough. So that also has to be enough. Sure, everything is grist for the mill. And I think it's important, uh, as Mark Twain said about writing, sometimes you just have to let the water in the well fill back up. But whenever I come across a patient who is extremely compulsive about working and fearful of spending two days at the beach, I always think of this wonderful Zen story about the meditation disciple who goes to the Zen master and says, about how long do you think it'll take me to be enlightened? And he says, well, maybe about 10, 11 years. And the student goes, no, no. I mean, I don't eat. I don't sleep. I do nothing but meditate and meditate and meditate. And the Zen master says, well, then you're talking 20 years. And that is a very wise anecdote. Because the downtime allows us to reconstitute who we are. All of who we are. As opposed to merely working, 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 and therefore our self-concept is we're only okay if we're working. Well, that's why I, and I don't know if I just picked these articles. I did pick them out of random, but they sort of flow beautifully. So I'm glad this is because you have one that's enough. It's titled Enough, How Not to Overwrite, because this was particularly about writing. But again, I looked at that as good enough as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's enough on both levels. Sometimes good enough is really enough. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in the uh, creative format, also less is more. Enough is enough. You don't need to go beyond where you, where you think because you may then be, as in, in the article, I, I get the sense that you, you almost may be doing it out of an insecurity rather than a security. Yes. Uh, in my experience, people who overwrite, who overthink, who do too much research, what they're really exhibiting is a lack of self-trust, a lack of belief that what they're doing will be understood or seen or appreciated by the, by the audience, the receptor. On the other hand, often a lot of people put more and more into something because they want to, in their mind, make it bulletproof i.e. that no one can complain about it. In other words, if you're a hostess of a party and you have a buffet, you want every food item known to man on that buffet because you don't want your Aunt Alice to come in and go, yes, but you noticed there was no fruit. And so what people do is they overload their writing, they overload their research, all of the things that they think will protect them from shameful self-exposure. And so they overdo. Dennis, your wisdom, uh, I I need to share it with even more than my viewers. I'm going to give out your website, if that's okay, because I just know that there's, and and this way they can also, would they be able to find links to all the articles that we're talking about? Oh, yes, absolutely. Perfect. W, oh, this is going to be very tough for everyone. www.dennispalumbo.com. So we'll leave that up for a second or two. And, and again, I, I know you, you're the kind of guy that will respond. And, and I think that's beautiful. But, but this is the line that I'm saving for now because I am personally dealing with this. Perfect timing and how to get it. Right now, 
for whatever reason, and my wife who's in the green room will testify, I have been feeling that I am mistimed, that I am somehow out of sync with where I need to be. And I must tell you, it's making me very nervous. Mm -hmm. So I can see how, you know, that's a topic that I I really want to, to approach for at least a little while. Oh, absolutely. This is something I hear about all the time in my practice. And it's not just about creativity. I mean, people who have not found a life partner at a certain age will go, oh, my timing was bad. I should have gone to this club when everybody was going there. But mostly I'll have, you know, so many patients who will work on creative projects And then people will say, well, no one's interested in that right now. But if you had brought this to me five years ago, we would have put it on the air and made a fortune. So there's this mythology that certain lucky people have perfect timing. And I think you can't do anything about timing. The only thing you can do is do your work moment to moment, what's true to you, and then hope for the best. If it's your karma, it's going to happen. The thing that I do know is that what Ben Hogan said, the famous golfer, someone said to him one time, you're so lucky. He said, that's right, I am lucky. And the harder I work, the luckier I get. And in my experience, in my practice, the patients who do consistent, diligent work, sooner or later, find the audience for that work. It may not be on your timetable, but you do find it. I've always told my wife, the only good doctor is one that when you see them, you leave feeling better. (laughs) Dennis, I feel better having you on my show. And guess what? About timing, our time is up. Ah, So I'm going to end with these words. Be in the world. Don't panic. If you get stuck, trust yourself. Those are your words. Thank you, Dennis, for helping unstuck us. My pleasure, Barry. Thanks for having me on again. That's my pleasure. And thank you guys for joining us. Now, before Dr. Palumbo leaves, I'd like to leave you with these few more words from his column, Hollywood on the Couch. Almost every aspect of our emotional life has both an affirming and an invalidating component. Our job then is to examine an issue that troubles us and learn what is both positive and negative about it in terms of our work and our life. I'm Barry Kibrick. Between the positive and negative aspects of our emotional life, look closely, for there you'll find your own creative juices. Thank you so much, Dennis. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe or become a patron of the show at barrykibrick.com to keep it going every week. Thank you.